corner back by the wood pole. People gonna tell a story and make you crap with paint. <laughs> I'm Spung Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Well, we got another episode full up of ghosty and other related creep stories. This time around, talking a mud-faced Mexican witch, meat rain, prison haunts, being sold out by your brothers in the middle of a desert, Ouija manipulations, and tunnels full of the dead offspring of fornicating clergy. But first up, we're going to float on over to ancient China, where many of the ghosts were quite the lookers intended to haunt lonely young men. And our special ghost guide on this segment is going to be Lisa C., author of many best-selling books such as Snowflower and The Secret Fan, Shanghai Girls, and China Dolls. Miss C. begins by explaining why we today have such a wealth of information regarding the hauntings of old. There was this guy in the mid-17th century who uh, went around China and collected 500 ghosts, werewolf, demon, you know, all these stories, and, and they're still in print today. So he didn't actually compose these stories. He actually went around and collected them. Exactly. As though they're true. Now, I don't know were they true. I don't know. I think the person who's most interesting was a man named Pu Songling, who in the mid-17th century collected about 500 stories that were about ghosts, fox spirits, immortals, goblins, demons, werewolves, all of these things. And they are still in print today. And the, the, the collection altogether was called Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio. But he himself called himself the historian of the strange. Do you know how he collected these stories? He was a failed scholar. So he had tried three times to pass the imperial exam, and he failed every time. And then after that, he just lived in his village. Um, he was very, very poor. You know, his whole family was poor, but he would put tea outside of his house, like a little tea stand, and then people would come by, and any time they came by, he'd say, oh, why don't you stop and have some tea with me? And that's how he would gather these stories. So many of them begin with, you know, I was sitting outside having a cup of tea when this farmer came by and, you know, offered uh, and told me this story of something that happened to him or happened to his friend or happened to his father. And so these were stories that really he mostly came to him, but he did travel a bit as well. And those, you know, wherever he went, he would ask. What's a strange or scary thing that's happened to you? Did he ever explain why he was particularly interested in the stories of the odd and the eerie? I haven't come across his own explanation, mm -hmm. but there are you know, all those scholars out there in the world who over the last 300 years have had their theories. Part of it has to do with the time that he was writing about. So this was in a period that's called the Ming-Qing Transition. So the Ming dynasty had been this very uh, rich and elegant dynasty, and then the Manchus invaded, and that's the start of the Qing dynasty. And so for about 30 years, there was a lot of turmoil in the country, and uh, you know a lot of changes for women, a lot of changes for men, and the whole family structure kind of teetered and all 
well, he was just reflecting the confusion of the time, and that some of these stories could be seen as, you know, kind of allegories about the government, about turmoil, mm. but that really it's, it's almost more of an internal thing, in the same way that people say today, you know, one reason we have so many zombie stories and so many uh, vampire stories is a reflection of our society today and the discomfort in our society and the world today. So let's talk about some of the individual characteristics, let's say the unique characteristics of Chinese ghosts per se, or Chinese werewolves. How do they differ from the stuff that we're familiar with in the West? Well, you know, in many ways they don't. You know, a, a goblin is a goblin. Right. I mean, anywhere you go in the world, and a, a demon is a demon anywhere you go. I would say one of the things that makes these different is this idea of ghost fox spirits. And fox spirits can be men or women, but the majority of them are women. And they have human form, and often you don't even know that, you know, that could be a fox spirit unless you see the little tail peeking out from under its cloak. Mm -hmm. You know, you might glimpse that, but, but often people don't know that that's what they're doing. And so for most of those stories, these are young women who come to prey on young scholars who are working towards taking the imperial exam. So these are young men who were kind of holed up for, sometimes for years, studying. And they would do things like they would tie, you know how Chinese in the old mm -hmm. days were, certainly in the Qing dynasty, had the cue, the long pigtail, right. you know, um, braid. And they would tie that to a rafter so that they couldn't fall asleep. Okay? <laughs> so these young men, they'd be studying so hard, and then this fox spirit, or sometimes a pair of them, would, would come in. And some of them are quite scary. Uh, often they involve seduction, um, obviously. You know, mm -hmm. these young women coming in on these poor young men who have to have sex with those fox spirits. But in a lot of them, they're kind of whimsical. So there's one story called The Ghost Girl Shaoxi. And this actually has two fox spirits who sneak in on this scholar night after night, and they're really kind of teasing him. So they pull his whiskers, they mm -hmm. pat his cheeks, they tickle his nose with feathers, they get behind him and cover his eyes with their hands. And then whenever he senses well, obviously, would sense them. They they kind of scurry off into a corner and giggle and giggle and they laugh their heads off. So that's not really eerie or scary. That one's kind of funny. But others have this really kind of dark imagery. So I actually looked up a couple of lines that are sort of my favorite. One is um, the wind sighs coldly outside, and the chill on the table is like ice. So you sort of get this sense of, of this, you know, it's cold, it's creepy. Mm -hmm. Another, uh, there's, there are two characters who are writing poems to each other. And he writes that the lines that they write, you know, the, the lines of script that they write are as tiny as lice. You know, that's kind of creepy.
Talk about the significance of the imperial exam. In imperial China, one of the only ways actually to move up in society was to take the imperial exam. You could be very poor. If you pass the imperial exam, you could be made into a magistrate, you could become an official. Uh, you, you know, there were so many things that were now open to you. Well, from all walks of life would study and study. And this was something that took years of study. And then you would go to the exam with all the other people and you were kind of um, put into a like a little cabin by yourself to take this exam and it lasted days. Very, very few people passed. And it was something that since men had put their whole lives into this, they would go back and study again and try to take the test again and try to do it again. You know, the history of Chinese literature is actually kind of littered with failed scholars, people who never were able to pass the exam, or they passed at such a low level that then they were sent way out into the countryside, you know, to the middle of nowhere, um, where they really had nothing to do, and they lived in deep poverty, and so they would drink and write poems. <laughs> and, you know, in the evolution of, I guess, uh, equal rights, it was a pretty big threshold because before that you had, I guess, nepotism and this was put in a place to try to right. fix that because it was, right. you just had like the spoiled sons and grandsons of officials getting all the post and power, even though it's probably hated today. I guess they have a form of it today. It, it, it does kind of equalize things somewhat. Well, it does. I mean, and you know, even here today, education is a way up and out of you know, of the circumstances, or can be a way of up and out of the circumstances right. to which you were born. It's been a while since I've read those, but I seem to remember there was a couple incidences, at least, where the fox spirit girl would fall in love with a mortal man, and she would end up getting pregnant. Right. And that's actually, that's the cure. That's the cure for being a fox spirit. There are many, many stories where someone marries a fox spirit, whether it's a man or a woman. Again, most of them are women. But the cure for being a fox spirit, the thing that turns you into an actual mortal woman, is giving birth. And there was, some of them were heartbreaking. It seems like almost all of them, their relationships had to end at some point. Well, most of them have, you know, a tragic ending. And there are several where the fox spirit or the even these more like ghosts, things like that will, well, a ghost is already dead, but they will do something where that's the end of them. You know, they sacrifice themselves to the sea or they are thrown down into the well or they're burned in a fire, but always it's kind of a self-sacrifice to ultimately save the target of the person that they've been haunting. You know, I can't remember the title of it, but it's a, a man who's traveling and he again meets this woman and she takes him to this kind of fantastical place under the sea. I think it's almost like a version of the Little Mermaid, Chinese version of the Little Mermaid. And at night she comes back up onto the boat and of course seduces him. 
that when in the end she saves his life you know, and that's the end of her I mean she you know that's the thing I think about a lot of these is that they really ha often have very sad endings so there's the humor part and then there are these uh, some that are really quite erotic I guess because here's the thing in this time for women you know if you think of China 300 years ago there are all those sort of things like you know, you're not supposed to smile and show your teeth. You're not supposed to be seen out in public, and you're um, supposed to live this really enclosed life. And that whole saying of you know, when a girl obey your father, when a wife obey your husband, when a widow obey your son. During this 30 years, so much turmoil in the country that people forgot to. You know, pay attention to the women in a sense they left the door open and women went out. And and I think Pu Songling, he really was picking up on that. And so a lot of these women, you know, whether they take the form of a fox spirit or a ghost, they are having adventures. And some of those adventures are really kind of like swashbuckling. They've got their swords and they're really fighting evil. But a lot of them also have that kind of, again, erotic sense. And, and you know, eroticism can go in many directions. Right. You know, sometimes it's, it's just nice and sexy, and sometimes there's sort of a, an evil attached to it of how you're kind of sucking the life out of, of a man. If people want to know how miserable women had it in those times, they should read a couple of your books. You know, the Snowflower and the Secret Fan for would be a good place to start. Or you know, Peony and Love, which I wrote, which came after Snowflower and the Secret Fan. That ultimately is a ghost story. I mean, that whole book is a ghost story, and it takes place in the exact same time period as Pu Songling was writing. There was an opera called the Peony Pavilion, and women were not allowed to see it. They could only read it. If you saw it, it was it was 55 scenes, about 25 hours to, to put it on. But women couldn't go see it, only, only men. And, but women would read it. And when these young women read it, they often caught cases of love sickness, like the main character in the mm -hmm. opera, and then would waste away and die. And, and as they were dying, they wrote poems and stories that were then published after their deaths. There were three women, all married to the same man, uh, one after the other. First one, she read the opera and would write her thoughts about love in the margin. But, of course, she wasted away and died. And then he married another 16-year-old girl and I think not really thinking properly. He gave her that copy of the Peony Pavilion, and now she too wrote her thoughts about love in the margins, but again, she too caught a case of love sickness and wasted away and died. When he was 40, he married again. In real life, she was only 13 years old, and but I made her 16. And he gave her that same copy, and she wrote her thoughts about love in the margins. Uh, but she was unlike the first two wives. She took all of her wedding jewelry and pawned it and used the money so that this could be published. All this, these things, these three wives had written mm -hmm. in the margins. And, 
and that book is known as the Three Wives Commentary. It's the first book of its kind to have been written anywhere in the world by written and published anywhere in the world by women. So how I chose to tell that story was actually as a ghost story. The Peony Pavilion, the opera, is a ghost story. I thought, well, I can also make this a ghost story. You know, Chinese ghosts, they have all of these things that they can do, but also all kinds of restrictions that you even see today in China how deep that ghost culture or belief in ghosts still exists. So, for example, ghosts can't turn corners. And so, you know, in gardens, you'll see those zigzag bridges. Not so much now, you know, in the era of freeways, but it used to be if you were going to a village, like my family's home village, there was no direct path or direct road because you don't want ghosts to come in because they can travel in a straight line. So, you know, you'd have to go left and right and left and right and left and right through the rice fields to get to the village. And that was because ghosts couldn't turn corners. They don't like mirrors, much like vampires. They don't like ferns for some reason. So they have all of these rules about ghosts, of what they can and they can't do. And I, I thought it would be interesting to just write a whole novel from the perspective of a Chinese ghost and see how she could get around some of those uh, restrictions. Because if ghosts didn't have the ability to get around, people wouldn't be haunted by, by ghosts if they you know, really didn't have some way to get around that restriction of turning corners. Next, let's go on down to Mexico away to see what the phantasma and witch doctors get up to. Okay, so you're from an area of Mexico called Chiapas, right? Yes. And Chiapas is kind of a big area. It is pretty big state. It's in the southwest part of Mexico. Yeah. And then your town, I guess you can call it a town? Yeah, yeah, it was one of the main towns in the state. Okay. Yeah. There was a woman that some thought was a witch. Yes. Well, she was known as Maria Cartones, which translates to Cardboard Mary. And she was an Indian, I believe she was a Chamula Indian. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's different groups of Indians up there, different, uh, I guess you'd call them tribes or groups. And she would always be walking around and she would always carry cardboards with her to sit or oh. to cover her head when it was raining. That area rains quite a bit. And she would put mud in her face. And uh, I don't remember her speaking ever Spanish. We lived in a corner, in an intersection, and our house had an entrance at the crest of the corner so we had a door there that we never used to go into the house and it, had, it was recessed so she could sit there and be away mm-hmm. from the element mm-hmm. but my mom would let her into our house we had like a little entryway hallway and she would go in there when it was real cold or raining real hard and my mom would give her food you said she didn't speak spanish did she speak an indian dialect or? yeah she probably spoke uh, chol or tojolaval which some of the languages up there in the highlands. You said she put mud on her face. Yeah. What was that about? I don't know. Uh, I, I do know that a lot of people would tease her, mm-hmm. you know, and she would get mad at him and, and yell at him and make noises, and that's probably why people thought she was a witch or uh-huh. crazy or something. That was the next thing I was going to ask. Why did, do you think the people thought she was a witch? You know what? I, I think it was more of a myth of parents telling their kids, 
you know, if you don't behave, we're going to get Maria Cartones to come and get you. <laughs> she could be a scary character for a kid. You know, she's got mud in her face and she's dirty and she's walking around. And most of the time when she was walking around, she would just be speaking to herself mm -hmm. in her language. Was there any other legends in your town or the area? Well, there, there's a lot of legends. Uh, there's a lot of uh, legends of houses being, you know, haunted mm. and that particular San Cristobal de las Casas was the midpoint between Mexico City and Panama by royalties. San Cristobal de las Casas was initially built like in the 1520s so it's a very very old city. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a lot of old houses, a lot of Catholic churches, big temples and so the gold would go from Panama to Mexico or Panama to Veracruz and they'd get in ships and they go to Spain. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of people would stop there and for a long time, the majority of the old houses are made out of adobe, and you know, and then they would have plaster. And supposedly, some people got rich digging for gold. Uh, and most of the people would dig holes in their walls because they were made out of adobe, mm -hmm. and they would put their gold in there and then plaster back over it. Uh -huh. And people would buy old houses and just dig holes and go around the walls, knocking and see if they could find a little hollow place. Did they ever find anything as far as supposedly? You know? Yeah, some people. And found gold and then the majority of the houses down there had water wells it's a very wet area it rains quite a bit so you could dig a hole you know 10 feet deep and you come the next day and there's like five feet of water in it very very good water so and a lot of people would hide their gold in their wells and that house where we live with Maria Cartones used to come in we had a water well but it was filled with dirt all the way to the top Oh, really? And people used to always tell us, well, there's gold there. Y'all need to dig it out. And uh, like, We're not going to dig yeah. it out. That house that we lived in, uh, people would say that it was haunted. And, you know, of course, we were kids. We had this big dining room that was mainly glass windows. And every once in a while, you'd just be sitting there, and the windows would rattle. Or the doors would just open by themselves. Uh -huh. And for all I know, it was the wind. I don't know. All right. Yeah. And once in a while, you would see a, a shadow of somebody walking by. Mm -hmm. It seems like your sister told me about that there was a, a horseman that used to ride around at night in the yeah. graveyard or something? Yeah, uh, th there was that story, and that would usually come out like after the other Los Muertos, you know, it yeah. coincides with Halloween, you know, when people would go to the cemetery and they would bring food for their loved ones, mm -hmm. and they would actually have a picnic to get the grab beside and bring flowers and stuff sure. like that. And they were saying that, you know, if the night after that, the horseman would come in and he would eat the leftover food. <laughs> yeah, and then people thought that it was their loved ones that came to eat oh. it, but it was the horseman that would come and eat it. We never saw him. And people up there, as far as I remember, they, they didn't go to the cemetery at night. They went during the day. And like I said, mm -hmm. they would have like a picnic mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And then they would leave food. And then they would also leave uh, like alcoholic drinks. Yeah, they, there's a drink that they make down there. It's called posh. The Indians down there made it. And they would leave it there. It's kind of like a white lining. I bet I know who the moonshine. Who the ghosts were? It's probably teenagers. Yeah, it's probably boys. teenagers or the the grave keepers. Right. That worked at the cemetery. Yeah. Uh. Back to witchcraft. Was yeah. that a, a reality down there? It is a reality. There is a big syncretism between the Catholic religion and the Indian beliefs mm -hmm. that they had before the Spaniards settled in that area. So there's a lot of mixing together. 
I know like the town of Chamula, people, you know, when they would get sick, you know, they would go to the church and they would pray and they would take like uh, like a Coke or some eggs and stuff and put them up there in the altar and pray and pray and mm. pray. And then they would take it home and eat it and they would get better, according to them. People would tend to go to a what's called sobandero, somebody that use holistic medicine instead mm. of a doctor. Right. And they would call them witch doctors. So they weren't actually doing hexes and things like that? Well, I don't know about that. I have an uncle that uh, <laughs> uh, he got married to this lady, and uh, she would make special teas for him. And she would be in the stove, and she would grab whatever weeds she was using to make tea, and she would, you know, fix him a certain way or time in little knots and be saying things and make teas for him. And we always thought that she was probably a witch, uh-huh. and that's how he married her because she was very unattractive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. The Catholic Church, I mean, what was their opinion of that? Well, you know, they accepted a certain amount of it because it, it allowed them to, you know, to capture their interest to come to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So they allowed a lot of parts of their old beliefs mm-hmm. and religion and gods to come into the Catholic Church. Do you think that caused a bit of a schizophrenia or, well, maybe conflicts? Well, I think there was conflicts, but I think uh, the Catholic religion with saints and stuff like that was very similar in a way to the Indian beliefs of certain types of gods. Mm. You know, and, and the Indians down there, you know, they would pray to some god for rain, some god for sun. Mm. So they did have certain deities, and it, it kind of lent to kind of be a good match for a Catholic church to where they had a bunch of, you know, saints and that they could pray to. So right, kind of intercessory. Yeah, yeah, came together. This was a very, very Catholic, church-dominated area of the, of the country. And some of the priests were very secular. They weren't your you know, typical priests that you know, didn't have wives or didn't have kids. Some of them, they had nicknames for them, and people knew them. Mm-hmm. And they actually didn't live in the church anymore. They lived outside the church because they had either wives or kids and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, is that allowed in the Catholic Church? It's not allowed, but, you know, they get away with it. Okay. And, and there was several convents and seminaries in the town, mm-hmm. and the the town of San Cristobal actually has tunnels underneath. Right. And they closed some of them, and the belief and the legend is the tunnels go from church to church mm-hmm. and from the seminary to the convents. And I remember when I was in elementary school, we actually, I went to a school that used to be a, a convent before, and they were digging a hole to build a cistern and to fill it with water for the school because water was not, we didn't have running water every day. And when they opened the school, they actually found a tunnel underneath. And we looked in there and we could see what looked like bones, but I don't know what they were. (laughs) And then, you know, of course, all the stories came out that that's where they would take the babies down there where the priests had babies with the nuns or, you know, people in those days would send their daughters to the nunnery if they were pregnant and they mm-hmm. had the baby and they take it away. Mm-hmm. But supposedly the, the priests and the nuns would go in underground all the time through the city. Huh. And those tunnels are still in existence. There's some streets that they fix them every year mm-hmm. and every year they sink more. They sink more. Because of the tunnels? Yeah. This is Fun Counter Daughter, and there's nothing I find sexier than a man that donates to my daddy's podcast. So we want to say big ups to Mac Daddy Williams. 
And if you too would like to be thought of as sexy by my daughter, you can throw some cash at us at PayPal via spungcounterguy at hotmail.com or by going to our Podbean page and clicking the Become a Patron button. Or if you'd like to be an underwriter or a sponsor or get us to talk about your product, shoot us a line at that email, spungcounterguy at hotmail.com. Okay, back to the spookin'. If you've ever taken life advice from a Ouija board, you might want to rethink that consultation, especially after listening to our next confessional. So back in high school, you played with a Ouija board. A couple times. It was you and a bunch of friends? Yes. Wasn't your Ouija board? No, my parents would never let me own a Ouija board. Okay, so tell us what happened. It's kind of a bad story, but my friend had a boyfriend that died. He broke into her house, the girlfriend's house, in the middle of the night. I heard the plan was for them to both kill each other or both commit suicide. But the dad woke up and came in and they wrestled and the boy ended up shooting himself, supposedly. Wow. And he died. Were they both sad about something? I have no idea. I wasn't friends with her until after this. And so when she played the Ouija board, I would push the little plastic thing towards the letter that would spell his name and act like he was talking to her. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. What did he say to her? Uh, I don't remember. And Probably bo- like, I love you or something like that. Are you trying to encourage her or what? I don't know. It was just, it made it more fun than everybody just sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> did she believe it? Yes, I think everybody believed it. I never confessed. So they still don't know. They still don't know. I mean, you know, I bet they're out there telling that story like, well, Ouija board, it really does work. Yes, they probably are. They probably bought one for their kids. Wow. How did you feel afterwards? Not bad at all. (laughs) How do you feel now? Not bad at all. Steve Asher is a former prison guard who couldn't help observing the strange while he was on duty. So much so, he wrote a book about it called Hauntings of a Kentucky State Penitentiary. So you've written a book about some hauntings in a Kentucky penitentiary, right? Right. Right. First of all, how did you stumble across these events? I had actually went to work at the penitentiary. I was down in uh, what they call 15 left, which was the original execution walk and it had the you know death chamber room and the electric chair I mean I, I sat in the chair and all that and just felt it very very a lot of pressure almost like you would have if you get in a deep end of the pool and you know get down at the bottom of the pool unit administrator or UA that had taken us around and I was like yeah it just feels odd feels off and he's like oh yeah you know these heating vents I said no, no I'm, not, I'm not talking about the heat and he kind of paused and let the other guys walk ahead of me and he said oh that yeah and I said, uh, I, I assume it's because of all the stuff that's happened here. And he said, two things that happen. You'll either get used to it or you won't be able to do the job. And he said, and, and, which is a normal thing. People feel odd things. And the, like, okay, the smart people take off. And the other one goes, let's go investigate that noise in the dark. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I decided to stick around. What was the first thing that you saw? The first thing that I ever encountered was in Forsyth House, which is more like the old school where on each end it has the metal grating and then it had like the walks that used to be open where people used to do a nose dive off of them. And I was working for Control. For Control has a series of cameras and mics and things to keep an eye on stuff, especially at night. I was working uh, afternoons, late afternoons into night. I'm working there 
and as the day changes into night, it goes off into almost more of a night vision. And I'm watching down on the lowest part, facing the riverside, which you got prison side, riverside. It's the easiest way to remember where something's at. Down on Twenty River, as they called it. And there's actually a river that goes by. Right. Well, yeah, you know, the, the, the Cumberland goes cuts right through there, which originally was what well, was Old Edifle. It's actually a river built on like, a, especially a ghost town. It's like a submerged town. Is it from the Tennessee Valley Authority when they were flooding towns? Yeah, yeah, it took all of Edible and also a lot of the adjoining towns on Twenty River started getting just this weird waver in the back. I started getting like a flicker. This right. is on the monitor. Right. Like, you know, when you drive and you get like heat coming off the ground, it makes it a little air wave. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I started getting that. And maybe somebody's got their hot pot close to the thing and fanning it and it could be anything. Well, I played that off as that. It kind of went from that to coalescing into, it was really bright. It was like, you ever seen like a magnesium uh, rim on fire where it's almost arky? Mm-hmm. It was like that. It was uh, not quite a plasma discharge. I wouldn't call it initially like something you see off Ghostbusters or something like that. It wasn't that CGI, but it was off. Mm-hmm. And I you know it shouldn't have been there. And it was so bright it dimmed the outside of the, lo- of the camera. Loop-de-looped a little bit. And as it moved, it left a bit of a trail, and it came straight toward the camera and off to the left, and was gone. And then the light of the hall returned like normal. So I'm looking, thinking something's coming up the steps. So I call the officer, say, hey, why don't you go down here and check this out? Um, just make sure somebody didn't leave a hot pot on or something. Mm-hmm. The guy was like, okay. So anyway, went down there. No, not a thing. There wasn't even actually wasn't anybody on the walk at the time. But I kept seeing shadows darting back and forth. And uh, I said, yeah, just make sure you're sure nobody left the light or a television on, make some flickering. And he's like, what's going on? You're really bird-dogging that walk. What's up? And I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And this is an older guy, and he said, at one time, this also was the uh, death walk. And back in the early days of the penitentiary, they didn't have their, their uh, sewer ventilation correct. So a lot of the gases that was coming down from that collected there and killed a bunch of men. And they said that was a really active walk for that. You know, a lot of deaths happened on it. Okay, he's like, hey, welcome to KSB. He said, you know, you'll have to get used to managing that and desensitizing yourself a bit. You mentioned in your book about the, I guess, the properties of limestone. As I understand, Crystal, quartz, things like that, carry frequency. I mean, if you're old enough to remember quartz radios that had the little, you know, the little quartz crystal in there, and it tuned to a certain frequency, and so you could pick up radio. Mm-hmm. Everything has a frequency. Everything has an energy to it. But when you have something that's primarily built on and made of limestone in conjunction with and tandem with whatever, a running body of water, which bodies of water create their own energy. A lot of times ley lines tend to kind of coexist in the same area with running water. That can build an energy field. I feel personally, this is my own personal thing, the living, the dead, or whatever you want to call it, everything has an energy field. And I think that's all spirits are, their energy. And basically a, a variant form of electrical based energy. And that's why when you're in investigation, Say if your batteries on your thing go down. Not every time your batteries go down, maybe you bought crappy batteries. Maybe your things. But if you have 
this thing going off, you have your flashlights dying, you have your EMF meters dying, and you're getting maybe some other readings and maybe get a voice something or a manifestation of shadows, that's fairly compelling. All that basically builds like a battery. And you understand the walls that, that were made by the were made by inmate labor, mm -hmm. and so all that emotional and psychic. You say maybe they absorb right. badness or the right. misery, or almost like the old thing where they would say like if you had like the leaded mirrors, and after so long of somebody sitting there combing their hair or whatever, and over years oh. and years, sometimes can develop almost an outline or a mirror image or like a negative of that person. There was one particular inmate that was involved in it, and they were not mentally stable and after they died they hated anything to do with that and to the point where they would like the individual would appear to officers solid enough that the guy swung his light into the wall thinking there was an inmate in his office thinking he's getting ready to get stabbed before I'm doing other types of stories and different sort of books and one of the books is going to be about just odd things in Kentucky and one of the weirdest things I heard about was something called the Kentucky meat rain and I believe this was closer to eastern Kentucky and these people were out doing whatever in their little square and stuff and stuff started dropping and at first you know they thought maybe birds or something come by but there was just just big chunks of meat anything from the size of your thumb to the size of your fist and it was just started, it just covered the place, you know, it was just like blood was everywhere and all this meat was scattered everywhere, you know, inch or two thick through the square. And they couldn't quite figure out what it was. And so they sent, I guess, a sample of it to either, it might have been Frankfurt, it might have been Cincinnati then, I don't know who had like crime labs at the time. But anyway, people looked at it, some people even tasted it, just kind of go, was this, is this deer meat or whatever? At first they thought it was kind of like venison or buffalo or something, and they said they couldn't quite identify it, but the closest they could compare it to was the lung tissue of either freshly born or in utero babies. Yikes. So first of all, somebody's eaten baby lungs, and it only happened once. Some people said, well, maybe with some buzzers they ate this and that, but who's eating baby lungs in that quantity? And then said, well, maybe there was a tornado or something. You know, you've heard of like right. a monsoon dropping fish. Sure. But this was something different. This was body parts. Wow. And it was specifically that type of material. I've even conjectured maybe where there was an abduction of some form and they were dumping off used parts, like they're <laughs> scraping a plate. Right. Off. But that's, I have no way of proving that. Finally, on a personal note, in my old age, I try to be a good grandpa and uncle by telling the younger kids in our family stories, either that I've made up or picked up somewhere. Here's one I share with my niece. So who are you? Braylon. Uh, who am I? Tim. Okay. And how do we know each other? We're in the same family. We're in the same family? Basically. What do you think about ghosts? They're not real. They're not? Well, let me ask you this. You know I'm a little older than you, right? So there's a good chance, you know, I'll die before you. And what if I'm up in heaven, and even though they have streets made out of Oreo cookies filled with peanut butter, and Jesus says it's okay for me to eat them, what if I still miss you? 
Can I come back and visit you as a ghost? <laughs> yeah. I promise not to talk like this. Like, Braylon, this is Uncle Tim. How are you? Are you keeping it real? Can I tell you a ghost story then? Okay. Uh, this story is from Sudan. Do you know where that's at? Well, if you want to go to Sudan, I think if you crawl out your bedroom window and you go towards the sun in the morning and you'll come to a big lake and you'll have to swim across and then you'll end up in a place called Europe. Once you get to Europe, you take a hard right and then you'll be in Sudan. The story goes, there was three brothers, two older and one younger boy. And they were out in a desert and they had no water and no food and they were about to be in some trouble. And so one night they found a tree that didn't have any fruit or anything in it, but they decided to sleep there for the night. And the two older brothers, they stayed awake while the younger brother fell asleep. And the two older brothers were like, hey man, let's leave our younger brother. They said, because if, if we find any water, we'll have to share it with him. If we find any food, we'll have to share it with him. So the other brother agreed. And so at night they snuck away. What if uh, your family did that to you? What, what would you do? I'd scream. You would scream. Well, when the younger brother woke up, he was very scared because his brothers were gone. But he thought, they're my brothers. They're, they haven't left me. And so he waited and waited and they never came back. But he still thought they were good. He thought, well, maybe they got lost. While he was waiting, some fruit fell out of the tree and hit him in the head. And he's like, ah, oh, cool. So he was able to eat the fruit and it had lots of juice in it. So he wasn't so thirsty. And then at night, he began to hear like wolves and uh, things that are out in the desert, you, you know, maybe snakes. So he decided he better hide. And uh, he found that the tree was hollow inside. And so he went inside the tree and, and slept. In the morning, he woke up and he found that in the tree, there was lots of things like someone had lived there before. So there was like a bow and arrow and I think an axe. So he decided to make some traps so he could trap some animals and you know, eat them. What, you don't eat animals? No? Turkey, I guess. You eat turkey? Turkey's an animal, it's not a plant. I've never heard a plant say gobble gobble, have you? <laughs> this is this a true story? It's a true story. I read it in a book. Maybe after we're done with the story, you can tell me if you think it's true, okay? Okay. So he caught some animals he was eating and every once in a while the fruit would fall out of the tree so he had something to drink. And then one night he caught a rat in one of his traps. And you know, when you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything. So he was about to kill the rat to eat it, but the rat all of a sudden started talking English. And it said, please, please don't eat me. I promise if you, if you <laughs> let me go, I'll help you later in life. So the boy kind of felt sorry for him and he said, okay. And then I think maybe a few days later, he heard some screeching outside and in his trap was a falcon, you know, a bird. So he's like, mm, that'd be good. I think falcons taste like chicken, right? Maybe they taste like bologna. Now we know what a falcon is. You don't know what a falcon is? It's kind of like a small eagle. You know what an eagle is? Yes. Yeah. So he caught a falcon, a bird, and he was about to kill that and eat it. And the falcon's like, hey, man, don't eat me. I'll be your friend later in life if you don't eat me. The, the boy decided, okay, I'll let you go. So later that night, he, he w went back in his home in the tree, still wondering where his brothers were. When he went inside, there was an old man there, but the old man wasn't really there. It was kind of a ghost of an old man. And he was like, hey, who are you? The old man said, well, 
I used to live in this tree a long time ago, and my spirit still hangs around. And I saw that you're all lonely, so I decided to help you. I'm the one who sends the fruit and the the axe and the bow and arrow. And the boy said, well, thank you. And the old man said, I, I don't think your brothers are coming back, so you need some extra help. And he said, uh, I'm going to give you this purse, you know, for men, a man purse. And he said, whenever you need something, just wish for it. But don't wish for anything bad, meaning, like, don't wish for bad things to happen to other people. He said, okay. So the next morning he woke up and it was still in the desert, still just the tree. He's like, I am so lonely. So I wish for a village full of people. And he wished it and the magic purse made it happen. All of a sudden there's all villages, there's people, there's dogs, there's cats, there's cows. And everybody knew his name. And they're like, hi, we like you. You're our mayor, we'll say. He lived there for a while and eventually he, he married a girl. She's real pretty. I think she had blonde hair and a bow in her hair. So after a few months of living in the village, everybody was happy. And one day they saw these two men walking and they looked really terrible. They looked like they were homeless and their clothes were all tore up and they looked really hungry. The boy realized it was his two brothers. They were still wandering around. He gave them some food and cleaned them up and uh, said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad you guys found me finally and you know, come. And uh, so they ate and, but they weren't good brothers because instead of being happy, they were jealous that their younger brother had did so good. They kept talking about him and wondering how our little brother gets so rich. And so the brothers are always like, oh man, why do you have so much stuff and we have nothing? And the little brother said, no problem. I'll wish for you a new house and some pretty wives. So he wished and they got him, but they were still just jealous. They weren't happy with what they got. That's when they first noticed that he had that magic purse. And they said, well, let us see it. The little brother let him see it. And guess what they did? They said, we wish that our brother was far away from here. Boom. Their little brother is in the middle of the desert again, but no tree and no old man, no nothing. He's, he's stuck. He's in big trouble now. He's going to have to eat sand. Ew. But guess what? Yeah. Somebody else did feel sorry for him. You know who? Who? The rat. Remember the rat who he let go? Well, the rat came out of his hole and said, Oh man, you look like things have went bad for you. I can help you, okay? So just stay here. So the rat went back into his hole in the ground and the rat knew where the where the brothers in the village w was. And when he got there, the brothers were fighting over the magic purse. You know, they both wanted to have it. So when they got in this big fight, the purse dropped on the ground, the rat jumped out of his hole, grabbed the purse and tried to jump back in his hole. But then one of the brothers almost got him. And then guess what happened? The falcon, the bird came flying out of the sky and started pecking their eyes and said, let, let that rat alone. And so the rat was able to go back in his hole with the purse and take it back to the brother. Finally, the younger brother realized his, his brothers were just mean. And he made one wish that wasn't evil. He said, I wish for my brothers to have a village and to have a life, but far away from me. I never want to see them again. And that was the end. What do you think about that? Fake. Fake? Because rats can't talk. Have you ever heard a rat not talk? Yes. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that, that, that didn't come out right. Have you ever been kind to animals? Yeah. Who? 
Homie. Homie is your dog, <laughs> right? Do you think the homie would help you if you got in trouble? Probably not. You have an older brother, right? Yes. Is he ever mean to you? Yes. <gasps> he is. <laughs> but you still love him, right? Yeah. He's never left you in the desert, have no. you? No. Are you happy you heard that story? Yes. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. I want to thank all my ghoulie guests, including Lisa C., Sergio Aguera, Stacy M., Steve Asher, Spun Counter Daughter, and Braylon Counter Girl. And if you'd like to check out Lisa C. or Steve Asher's books, you can go to lisac.com or steveasher.com, respectively, or do a search on Amazon. And if you have a hankering for more chills, you can check out past episodes of our ghosty stories up on our In the Corner Back by the Woodpile iTunes page. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com.